When the apostles met together, they asked Jesus, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, the Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to a room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. To you, O Lord. The reading is from John chapter 17, verses 1 to 11, and is found on page 1085 in the Bible. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I have revealed you to those you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. 
I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Perhaps one of the hardest things for even Christians to understand, to get our heads round, even more than the cross and the resurrection, is the ascension of Jesus. And what I'm going to look at this morning is is what the ascension means for us as followers of Christ. So let's just take a moment, bow our heads for a prayer. Risen and ascended Lord, we pray that you would speak by your Holy Spirit and that we would draw closer to you, know you better and become more like you. In Jesus' name, amen. We've just heard the account that Mary read from the book of Acts of what we call Jesus' ascension, his return to his heavenly Father. And it's the last time that the resurrected Jesus was seen in the world. And he's with his disciples on the Mount of Olives just outside Jerusalem. And we're told in verse 9, after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him. From their view. So, are we really to believe that Jesus was catapulted through the Earth's atmosphere out into space where he eventually arrived at a place we call heaven? Well, I don't think so. Are we then to believe the ascension happened at all? And my answer is absolutely yes. But if that's the case, then where, and I can't say where on earth, but where not on earth, did Jesus go? And in order to help us better understand what's going on here, I've put together a few slides to help us think about this. And first of all, there is a timeline going from left to right. And in the account that Mary's just read, Jesus leaves his disciples. He leaves the world. And I've shown that on the left. But where has he gone? We say in everyday language that he's gone to heaven. And I think the difficulty with that language is that heaven sounds like a particular geographical place. But that's not actually what scripture reveals. The biblical scholar Tom Wright says that heaven is not, repeat not, that's his words, not mine, a location within our own idea of time, space and matter, situated somewhere up in the sky. Heaven and earth are more like two interlocking realms of God's reality which touch each other everywhere. And one analogy that we might use, or no no analogies are perfect, but one analogy we might use to help us think about this is a fish in the, in the sea and a bird in the air. 
um, in this case a shark, and uh, neither one of them can move and live in the other one's environment. But the realms, the realm of water and the realm of air, touch each other everywhere, all around the earth. They're in contact with each other. And I think that's a little bit how it is with heaven and earth. One is not in any way distant from the other. Both dimensions exist simultaneously and touch each other. And in our analogy, perhaps from time to time, the fish gets a glimpse of a shadow passing overhead as the bird flies past. And perhaps the bird sees a shadow of the fish underwater. And it's a bit like that with us, between earth and heaven. Sometimes heaven seems to touch earth And there's a powerful sense of the presence of God. And we get a sense that heaven is just almost within our grasp. What's fascinating, of course, is that the risen body of Jesus was the first and so far the only object which is fully at home in both realms. During his resurrection appearances, Jesus is constantly appearing, spending time with his disciples and then disappearing, and then reappearing again, and moving between these two realms. And perhaps angels can do this too. And if we read on in verse 11, we find the disciples being told by two men dressed in white, presumably angels, that this same Jesus who's been taken into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. This verse and dozens of others in both the New Testament and the Old Testament tell of a time when Jesus will return, at which point the heavenly and the earthly realms will be joined forever and those judged righteous will be given new resurrection bodies and live in the presence of God forever. And a good question that falls out of this is, Well, if Jesus could simply move between those two realms, as he did in his resurrection appearances, then was the ascension really necessary? Did it really happen? Or is Luke's account purely allegorical? Did Jesus really simply just disappear, and they never saw him again, and Luke made this up as a kind of a a, a grand finale? Well, the biblical scholar, John Stott, is convinced that the ascension really happened for two reasons. Firstly, Luke's account is so straightforward and matter-of-fact. There's no embellishment, there's no attempt at great imagery. It simply says, after this, he was taken up before their very eyes. In just the same way we might say, after breakfast, I took the dog for a walk. It's that simple, the way he puts it. There is no grand finale. Secondly, John Stott points out that Jesus could perfectly well have simply vanished as he did in his resurrection appearances, if he'd wanted to. But the reason for a public and visible ascension is that he wanted his disciples to understand that he'd gone for good, so that they weren't to hang around waiting for his next resurrection appearance. They had to get on with doing the things that Jesus had called them to do. And that, of course, leads us on to much more 
directly relevant questions to our lives about what are we supposed to do as Christians in the light of Jesus' resurrection and his ascension? What is it that he's asked us to do? Well, let's look back to the beginning of that passage that Mary read. Just before Jesus leaves them, his disciples ask him a question. They say, Lord, are you at this time going to restore your kingdom to Israel? And I always imagine Jesus looking incredibly exasperated at this question. It reveals the disciples' complete lack of understanding, even at this point, about Jesus' mission. John Calvin, the great theologian, he wrote this. He said, there are as many errors in that question as there are words. (laughs) Which isn't very kind, is it? But the disciples were even now still hoping for a political and a territorial kingdom, a nation-state of Israel that they would rule along with Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus' reply makes it clear that the kingdom is to be a spiritual kingdom. Firstly, in verse 7, he tells them to forget all of this questioning about when it's going to happen and how. Um, He says it's not for them to worry about when the kingdom will finally come, and that's a message for all of us. We're not to spend time speculating on what date or when Jesus might return and restore the whole of creation. But in verse 8 he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And what's the purpose of this power? The verse continues, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. In other words, Jesus' kingdom will be a spirit-led kingdom, which will be initiated by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost in a few days' time after this event, at which time they will be equipped to take the good news of the gospel out into the world. And the disciples finally accept that he's going, they believe him and obey him. And in verse 12, after Jesus has ascended to the heavenly realm, the apostles return to Jerusalem and taking Jesus at his word, they gather in an upstairs room. It says they all join together constantly in prayer and they await the fulfillment of the outpouring of the Spirit. And in this fascinating account of the ascension and the disciples' response, we get a clear understanding of what Jesus expected of both those first disciples and what he expects of us as believers down the ages and the role of the church. Today, we still live in this time between Pentecost and Jesus' return. The kingdom has been initiated by Jesus and by the sending of his Holy Spirit, but not yet reached its fulfillment. And in the meantime, we can see from this passage how we're meant to anticipate the future return of Christ. Firstly, like those apostles, we must put our faith in Jesus, which means believing and obeying him, and that means putting our trust in the inspired word of God, the Bible, which reveals the living word of God, Jesus Christ, 
and following him and becoming more like him. God wants us to become more and more like Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, puts it like this. The church exists for nothing else but to draw people to Christ and to make them little Christs. If they are not doing that, all the cathedrals, the clergy, the missions, the sermons, and even the Bible itself are simply a waste of time. God became man for no other purpose. The Apostle Paul said we should be imitators of Christ. Peter wrote that we should follow in his steps. John said that we should walk in the same way as Christ. Jesus said we should take his yoke upon us, in other words, his way of life upon us. The good news is that if we will let Jesus fully into our lives, we can continue to grow more like Jesus right up until the day that we take our last breath. Because becoming more like Jesus is a lifelong pursuit. Why should we do it? Because Jesus has laid down his life for us on the cross in order that we can be in communion with God and ultimately follow him into that new heavenly realm. And if he's done that for us, why should we not lay down our lives for him? Secondly, we see the apostles and Jesus' other followers all coming together in prayer, constantly in prayer, as they waited for God's resources to be poured out for for them. So our task is not to carry out God's mission in our own strength, but on our knees. It is in prayer that we develop our relationship with God, and in united prayer that the church finds its mission. That's why we've been praying through our mission action plan. And over the next three Sundays, we're going to be thinking about how each of us can play our part in God's mission worked out through the church family here at St. Matthew's. And that brings us to the third point, that by believing the word of God, putting our trust in Jesus and praying in unity for God's resources, we will, as a church, be fully equipped by God's spirit to be God's witnesses in the world. God doesn't just want you and me to become more Christ-like, but all those who don't yet know him. And that can only happen when we, put, when we join God's mission in the world. What we're talking about here is transformed lives. And I, I love it hearing the, the stories of the difference that it makes to someone's life when they choose to follow Jesus or when their relationship with God comes alive. And we've heard so many stories. People have stood here and and, and told of how the love of God in Jesus has changed their lives. Fred has told us of the healing power of God's love in his life. Jenny's witnessed to us about the, the Holy Spirit speaking to her of God's love for her. Lisa has told us of her encounter with the Spirit at New Wine last year when she felt that God's love and healing power coming into her life. We've heard from the confirmation candidates last term, didn't we, from Ellie and others, of the love of Jesus changing their lives in wonderful ways. And on the Alpha course this term, we're hearing stories of God touching people's lives as they sense his presence 
and they experience the peace and the joy that he brings. The one thing that's common in almost all people's experiences of God is that what tends to initiate a close encounter or a deepening of our relationship with Jesus is the willingness and openness and expectancy with which we seek him. Like the apostles, waiting together in prayer for the Holy Spirit in Jerusalem. And over the next three weeks, we're going to be looking at how we can get more involved in God's mission here at St. Matthew's. And I don't think there is a better way that I can think of to put ourselves in the path of experiencing God's power in our lives than when we join his mission. Whether that's by praying, whether it's by going out in the community, or whether it's by inviting people to our church. Because it was as those first disciples responded to Jesus in faith and obedience by seeking him on their knees and by joining his mission that they found themselves full of the Holy Spirit witnessing to Jesus with the power of God in their lives. And here's a final parable to to finish with. If you look at the front cover of your service sheet you'll see a picture of a windsurfer. It's the way a windsurfer should look. A windsurfer doesn't go anywhere if you're standing on the board with the sail lying in the water. Equally, we can't make a windsurfer go anywhere in our own strength, or at least not very far and not very fast. But when we lift the sail out of the water, we make ourselves available to the power of the wind. And then, when the wind blows we move fast and with little effort from ourselves. You can see that the man in the picture is simply hanging on the harness. He's not pushing the windsurfer forward. And the more we make ourselves available to God in prayer, joining his mission, the more we will be filled with the wind of his spirit. And then our lives in Christ can really fly along, just like the windsurfer. Jesus didn't want to leave us the way we are. He loves us too much for that. And after dying for us on the cross, he ascended into the heavenly realm in order that he could send his spirit to transform our lives and to become more like him and to be his witnesses in the world. Amen.